Second Samuel chapter 23, and we're going to read the first five verses. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? We're told that these are the last words of David. Now, they're not his last words and then he died, but his last words given by divine inspiration. The Puritan John Flavel says that they were his sweet swan song in which his soul found refreshment and strong support amidst the many afflictions of his life and the fears of his approaching death. The whole chapter gives us an account of the worthy expressions that David said and the worthy men that he employed. It recounts for us David's victory over the Philistines and many other gallant acts. But all of David's heroic achievements that follow are trivial and insignificant, in my opinion, compared with the declaration given by him in verse 5. And for the sake of ease, I have broken this passage down with alliteration using the letter C this time instead of P, and we have the conveyance, the criterion, the confession, the comfort, and the contentment of David. And we'll look at each one of those as we go. First of all, the conveyance. In verses 1 and 2, David tells us that he was a man who was anointed of God, and he gives us his nickname, if you will. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. I think that's a lovely, lovely title. Other ones say the sweet singer of Israel. He tells us that he was divinely inspired. He says, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. And then we move on to the criterion. In verses 3 and 4, David relates what God's standards are for a leader and the high calling and dignity of a godly ruler. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain, or by clear shining after rain. God has always had high standards for leaders and a high regard for those leaders who fulfill those high standards. And then we come to David's confession. And we have to spend a little time here to sort out a controversy of sorts. And I guess there's another C if you want one. The New American Standard Bible and the NIV translation both render the first line of verse 5 as a question. As if it read this way, Truly is not my house so with God? 
And there's good grammatical reason for such a rendering. The first words of the first line are the same as the first words of the last line. And since all the translations agree that the last line is a question, why wouldn't the first line be a question as well? On the other hand, there are no grammatical markers in the text that would indicate that it is a question. And additionally, and I think this is the best argument for the notion that it is a statement and not a question, is that it wouldn't be true that David's house was right with God, that it matched the description given in the two verses where the description of a godly leader is set down. That it had been the desire of David's heart. He had resolved to walk before God with a perfect heart. In Psalm 30, he had dedicated his house to God. But David had committed murder and adultery. And the offspring of his tryst with Bathsheba died because of it. Tamar was defiled by her brother Amnon, who was then cruelly murdered at the bidding of Absalom. Absalom rebelled against his father David and drove him out of the royal city. Then Adonijah, another son, tried to usurp the authority of Solomon and perished for it. This is a dysfunctional family if there ever was one. And I think David would say, my house is not right with God. In addition to what David would be reflecting upon with regard to his children, he would have to say about himself as well as would every one of us. You can hear David saying, I've got to confess that neither I nor my children have lived so exactly or ruled so uprightly in the fear of God as we ought to have done. We've had our faults, we've had our failures, we've had our follies, and some of those have clouded our consciences and tarnished our reputations. I've had, you can hear David saying, I've had political failures, I've had ecclesiastical failures, and I've had personal failures. My children haven't turned out like I wanted them to. Some of them have died in the prime of their lives. I've been banished from my own throne and from my family. Because of my sin, I'm not allowed to build a house for God, and I'm not allowed to abide in His sanctuary. I have a deeply wounded spirit that has sighed many deep, deep groans. And at times, many times, in fact, God has seemed to withhold His grace from me. It seems like He has hidden His face from me, and He's left my soul at the brink of despair. Now, would this man say that my house is right with God? I just don't think so. I don't think it fits. There's too much evidence to the contrary for David to try to slip that one by on us and God. So I take the position, as do other commentators, but there's just as many on the other side. I take the position, this is a statement. My house is not so before God. And also, those who do see this as a question see it as a cause and effect state, uh, situation. Since David's house is right with God, they say, therefore, God has made an eternal covenant with him. But that isn't true, and that can never be true. Because it isn't ever on the basis of something we have done that God makes a covenant with us. 
The eternal covenant between God and man is not made on the basis of how good man is, but how faithful God is and how obedient Christ was on man's behalf. As we saw in the last session, when God speaks in Ezekiel 36, He makes it very clear that the only thing we have done is profaned His his name among the nations where we have gone. And so that whatever He is going to do, He is going to do for the sake of His holy name. And so I see David devaluing his own worthiness and elevating the grace and mercy of God in his covenant with David. Though my house is not all that God wants it to be, or though my house is not established according to God's holy standards, and that confession, and it could even be called a concession on David's part, leads us right into the next thing, the comfort of the covenant. In spite of all that, in spite of my failures, in spite of my follies, in spite of my sins, yet, He has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secure. You see, once again, it's not because of what David has done, And it's not because of what you have done, and it's not because of what I have done. It's in spite of those things. In spite of David's failures as a leader. In spite of David's failures as a father. In spite of David's failures as a husband. In spite of David's failure just as a man. In spite of all of that, his hope rests on God's covenant with him in all these things And that covenant is ordered in all things and is secure. How so? Because of one word that he uses to describe the covenant. It's everlasting. Not on the supposition of David's obedience, but on the unchangeable purpose of God and the efficacy of the obedience of Christ, which hadn't even happened yet, whose blood would confirm it. And that covenant is as secure as Christ and His finished work on the cross, even though for David all of those things were future events. Some of you may have left here last night feeling like you'd really blown it as parents so far. Or maybe you were feeling very affirmed. I hope that was the case. I know every time I give that message and that talk and talk about these things, I go back bewailing my own failures as a father because I didn't do those kinds of things with family worship. That wasn't a part of my upbringing, and it seemed so foreign to me. I mean, we never prayed as a family other than, thank you for the food, amen. Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God, stuff like that. I mean, that was just about the extent of it. And we never had times of family worship. Now, I'm not blaming that on anybody. I I have had to learn how to do all that. And I've had to ask my daughter's forgiveness for not being the kind of spiritual leader when she was much younger that I realize now I should have been. And maybe that was where some of you were last night. Fortunately, that's not why God acts, is because of how good we are. He acts because of His covenant. The Chaldean version of this passage is just the best in the whole world. 
It renders it this way. There is more right with God's covenant than is wrong with my house. Is that the best? You know, that's the hope of every one of us. There is more right with God than there is wrong with me. And that's really what we were saying yesterday about being saved to the uttermost. That God is a better Savior than I am a sinner. And that's something we need to remind ourselves of at least a thousand times an hour. God is a better Savior than I am a sinner. And there is more right with Him than is wrong with me. By the way, that wouldn't be a bad thing to remind ourselves of when we tend to look at the newspaper or the state of the world and say everything's falling apart. There is more right with God than is wrong with the world, too. And our hope should not be in the newspaper. And our hope should not be in what we see. And the hope should not be in what we hear. But... My times are in God's hands, and He will accomplish what concerns me. And when we look at the visible church, we can get discouraged, but we need to remember that God's church is right exactly where He wants it to be, that all true believers will end up where God wants them to be, and that there may be visible churches that are really falling apart. But one of the books that we have published, The Arraignment of Error by Samuel Bolton, talks about this very thing. Why does God allow errors in the church? Why does He allow churches to fail? And he quotes to the New Testament, says there must be errors to distinguish between true and false believers. That this is a good thing in some part because it forces us to the Scriptures for the truth. There is more right with God than there is wrong with me. That is the hope of every true believer. And it is the hope of every Christian parent. I spend a great deal of time with my dad now. I'm looking forward to seeing him this weekend. He's driving down and picking me up in San Jose on uh, Friday night, he and my mom, and they will be at the Northern California camp that I'm speaking at next week. And I spend a great deal of my time just telling him, you weren't that bad, Dad. Yeah, but I should have done this with you guys. Listen, we're all alive. We've all got jobs, and we're all saved. I said, that's better than 99% of the people in the world can say. You did okay. You did as good as you knew. I mean, if you'd known better and you'd done it wrong, that would be one thing. But, you know, we all learn from who we came from. And he came from his dad and he represented that. And his dad came from his dad and learned that way. You just can't beat each other up and we can't beat ourselves up with all that we should be. We just need to make sure that we're doing what we can with what we know now. There's more right with God than is wrong with me. God is bigger than all of my sin. Now, I don't care how bad you think you are as a sinner, God is bigger than your failures. I am responsible for my failures, but God is bigger than those. In fact, He keeps turning all these seeming failures into successes. Now, you know this about your own life. How many times have you blown it? How many times have you made what you thought was a wrong decision? How many times have you, and you know this to be true, you sinned and somehow God actually did what He said He'd do. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I think the NASB is right on that where it doesn't simply say we know that all things work together for good. That's kind of an optimistic Stoic, well, everything always turns out for the best, you know. No, but God causes 
all things to work together for good. We're going to look at that tomorrow when we look at the goodness of God in more depth than we did this morning. There's a book making the rounds these days in which the author takes the position that when he does any marriage counseling, he begins with the premise that it is the man's fault. Very popular book among women. (laughs) And his reasoning is is that since man is the federal head of the house, God holds him accountable, and he must be doing something wrong for these things to take place. The problem I have with that reasoning is if you follow it strictly, it makes God responsible for my sin because He's my covenant federal head too. And you know that no rational being is going to make God responsible for my sin. Christ takes responsibility for my sin, but He is not inherently responsible for my sin. Every man is going to give an account of himself. I was just talking with a friend of mine I used to know in the PCA. This is one of those horror stories that he and his wife were having troubles, marital troubles. And so at one point he went to the uh, pastoral care committee and he told them about the struggles that he was having with his wife and the sins that he felt she was, respond- that she was committing that were making the home a, a very, very tough place to be in, particularly for him as a pastor. And so because they took this stance that I was just decrying, they called him in and brought charges against him for not bringing charges against his wife. Yeah, I had the same response. I gasped for breath. I was just talking with one of you this week who said that that's the reason we uh, decided to reject that whole book was because if it's true, then whenever a wife or a child sins, we need to discipline the husband. Now, this is just another example of non-thinking. But you can hear David here. Though Amnon raped his sister, though Absalom had him killed, though Adonijah was overly ambitious, yet, this Old Testament yet is the Old Testament version of the apostolic but in the New Testament. You know, this is what Paul does repeatedly. I love reading Paul because it's a course in logic as well as a course in theology. Paul paints the worst possible picture. You were alienated from the life of God, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Boy, can you imagine carrying that load around? Each one of those is enough to make you sink. And he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, wherewith because of the love with which he loved us. Boy, I've come to fall in love with that three-little word, but, three-letter word, but. But God. And no matter how low I get, I keep reminding myself that there is that but God phrase. Because you see, it doesn't matter how bad you are but God. And that's the same thing we have here. Yet. Yet. You may not be Father of the Year. You may not be Mother of the Year. Some of the things you're learning this week perhaps are new things and you're saying, how come I didn't know that before? I wish I'd have known that. 
Well, you're only responsible for what you do know, not what I know or what somebody else's know. But once you do know it, you are responsible for it. But you're not responsible for what you didn't know. Of course you've made mistakes. You're a sinner, you married a sinner, and you passed on that sinful nature to all your children. What's the problem? It all makes sense, doesn't it? We wish it were otherwise. I remember when I was a member of the Covenanter Church when I worked at Geneva College. And I went to that, uh, it was a great church on College Hill there, and about 400 of them. I tell you, there's no better singing in the world than a cappella psalms in four-part harmony. It is just superb, singing the Scripture. And I used to sit and I'd watch, and, you know, these people are all, I think they're all intermarried or something. <laughs> they all know each other from birth. You know, you've got the McCrackens and you've got the McFarlands and you've got this family and that family. They've all known each other. From the time they were born, they've memorized these psalms. And I'm sitting here reading the psalm book, you know, trying to keep up and everything. And here, four-year-olds without psalm book, look, who's, what's the matter with you? Yeah. And they know the harmonies and everything. And I said, boy, I wish I had grown up in a family like that. Why couldn't I have been born into a family that had daily devotions and where Dad was the spiritual leader and where we looked up to his authority because he got it from the Word of God? And where we supported one another as a family instead of fought with one another, tried to get each other in trouble all the time. How come I couldn't have been born into a family like that? And I'm sure my dad says to himself, how come I couldn't have been a father like that? Why did I have to be born into a family where my father was so alienated from us and he was so gruff? I've kind of, kind of come to grips with where I came from. As I, was, I mentioned to you I was doing this genealogy. My dad's dad lost both of his parents when he was a year and a half old. He was raised by his older sister, who was a Jehovah's Witness. He got really turned off to all kinds of religion. When he was ten years old, he ran away from her house, that was in Minnesota, jumped a train and rode the rails for seven years as a ten-year-old, working to stay alive, and when he was 17, he wound up in the fruit orchards in Northern California. And his work took him up to Eureka, California, where he met my grandmother, who was a singer in a Salvation Army band. He didn't know anything about parental tenderness. And my dad tells me this story about how his, uh, one of his aunts came over and had baked a pie, and she says, can the children have pie, Jack? And he says, they didn't finish their dinner. They can't have pie. And she says, oh, come on, Jack, just this once. And she put a piece of pie in front of my dad. And he says, my gran he says that his dad, my grandpa, grabbed the pie, threw it against the wall. He said, I said, no pie. That was all the tenderness he ever saw. Now, that doesn't excuse anything. But we see how these things trickle down through generations. And sometimes we need to look at how far we've come. And yet David is looking at all of this and says, my house is a mess. There's incest. There's murder. There's selfish ambition and pride yet. God has made a covenant with me. And he says, I have that anchor to secure me. God's covenant with me 
you almost want to put it in parentheses, in Christ, undergirds me, it props me up, and it holds me together during these trying times. That was true for David. And it's most certainly true for any of us who have entered into covenant with God through Christ. Let me say this, and if you remember nothing more this week, this is the most important truth I can convey to you. The question is not, and it never has been, and it never will be, how good you are. The question always is, how good Christ was on your behalf. The question is not how good you have been. The question is how good Christ was on your behalf. And so the question isn't how faithful you are to God, though you must be faithful to God. The question is how faithful God is to Himself. The question is not how much we can be trusted, but how much God can be trusted. This is not held together by our imperfect obedience. It is held together by Christ's perfect obedience. And that's why His active obedience as well as His passive obedience is so important for us. And that's why we ought to rail and rail against those false teachers who say that Christ became a sinner. He became a sinner. Not a one of us is saved. And again, the difference between the Old and the New Covenant is our noticeable lack of responsibility for its success. Whereas before it was, if you will do this, God will do that. It is now God will do this. And because of what He has done, He has done you will now be this and you will now do this. Can you see how much of, quote, Christian television is Old Covenant? Because it's all based on if you will do this, God will do that. Think of the promises they make. If you will sow your seed, I don't know, maybe you've got better taste than to watch this stuff. You know, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm flipping through channels. Isn't it amazing? I've got 200 channels I still can't find anything to watch. But there's this Robert Tilton guy. And he's a heretic from Dallas. And then, but it doesn't matter who you watch, it's always you do this and God will have to do that. If you sow your seed, or if you send me this money, we can agree on it together and God will have to do it. God won't have to do anything other than what He's promised, and He's never promised money. Don't you love it when they throw out the demon of debt? And they pray over your credit card bill and they say, you don't owe this money anymore. I just can't wait to be there when Visa gets that response. No, I, I tell you, Owen, Oral Roberts told me I didn't owe you this money. Call him. I'm sure he's got enough to pay the bill. The success of God depends on God's faithfulness to himself in keeping his covenant with himself. And as long as there is a God, this covenant is in force. In other words, as long as God has a being, you will find mercy at His hands. Isn't it interesting how much of our security depends upon the eternality of God and Christ? We were seeing that in Hebrews 7 yesterday, that since Christ always lives to make intercession for us, we're safe. 
And the only reason we would ever need to be unsafe is if Christ dies, but He's died once for all. He'll never die again. And so He ever lives to make intercession for us. As long as Christ has being, we will have right standing with God. As long as God has being, His covenant is in enforce, and we will find mercy at His hands. You think it's important that God is an eternal being now? That He will never die? Now David points out for us that there are three aspects to this covenant that bring Him great comfort. First of all, it is eternal. Second, it is ordered in all things. And third, it is secure. It is a perpetual covenant. Literally in the Hebrew, a covenant of eternity. The benefits and mercies of the covenant are durable and they are endless for the people of God. There is in this covenant an everlasting righteousness, according to Daniel 9, an everlasting kindness, according to Isaiah 54, everlasting forgiveness in Jeremiah 31, and in consequence to all of these, everlasting consolation in Isaiah 51. It just keeps getting better. Everlasting forgiveness. That means God never gets tired of forgiving. First of all, God never gets tired of doing anything. Nothing makes God weary. Not you, not me, not all of us combined, not all the sins of all the people for whom Christ died combined will ever make God tired because if God is omnipotent and He has all power and He has all strength, He never gets tired of anything. And so He has everlasting forgiveness. My favorite is this, he has an everlasting righteousness. And that righteousness is mine because of Christ. In other words, as long as Christ lives, his righteousness is my righteousness. He also tells us it is a covenant ordered in all things. In other words, it is orderly prepared, it is orderly disposed, it is orderly set. That is what the Hebrew word tells us. Everything in it is disposed in place in its proper order. God keeps His place as the donor of these mercies. Christ keeps His place as the purchaser and surety of the covenant. And believers keep their place as the unworthy receivers of all the mercies and benefits of the covenant. It's very orderly. There is pardon in this covenant for the guilt of our souls. There is joy in the covenant for the sorrows in our hearts. There is strength in the covenant for the weakness in our lives. And there is stability in the covenant for the divided hearts and lives that we have. And it is a sure, secure covenant. The Hebrew word means it's a covenant safely laid up and kept. And that's why in another place in the Psalms, David calls the mercies of the covenant sure mercies. As I said, they're not always swift mercies. But they are sure mercies. Doesn't it seem like if God was a lifeguard, you'd be going down for the third time or resting on the bottom with your last breath before he even gets out of the chair? I mean, doesn't it seem to you that he has a very poor sense of timing, that he never seems to move quite quick enough to act for the problems that we're having, and yet the Scripture always says this, at just the right time. See, that's always when God acts, at the right time. Not on our time, 
but it is the right time. Now everything is as its foundation is. And since God's covenant is founded on His unchangeable counsel and purpose, then His covenant is sure and secure since God can't change. And since Christ is the surety or the guarantee of the better covenant, it can't change because He's died once for all. If the covenant were to change, it would undo the, un- the finished work of Christ on the cross forever. And what does this lead David to but the last thing, and that is the contentment. Look at verse 5 again. This is all my salvation. This is all my desire. David was a very focused man in spite of all the afflictions in his life and the problems in his house. And David knew what we so often forget that our salvation is based on the unchanging purpose of God and His covenant with Christ to redeem a people for Himself. And that choice of a people and of each individual person in that collective group called the people of God is not based on our worthiness to receive it, but upon Christ's worthiness as our substitute. This idea of a substitute is very important. Let me just give you a sports analogy. This goes all the way back to the 1950s, the old Baltimore Colts, that their quarterback was named George Shaw. And he was having a bad day, but he'd been their quarterback for quite some time. But finally, the coach just couldn't go any longer with the way George Shaw was playing. And he looked to the bench and he saw a young kid from Pittsburgh who had been a late-round draft choice He had been quite a star in Pittsburgh playing in a high school field that had broken glass on it and things like that. And he hadn't even been selected by the University of Pittsburgh or Penn State or anybody else to play. But he did get a late scholarship to the University of Louisville and then drafted in the late rounds by the Baltimore Colts. And so the coach said, Johnny Unitas, get in there. And their success for some time was based on the quality of that substitute. Well, that's a terrible analogy compared to this. But you've got better than John Unitas as your substitute because this substitute never fails. He is totally worthy. What Christ did in obedience to God's command is our salvation and it's not a part of our salvation. And we supply the rest. It is all our salvation. Mike Horton And one of his uh, associates a few years ago on the floor of the Christian Booksellers Convention, which really is a misnomer anymore because there's not many books being sold anymore. It's mainly trinkets and T-shirts and gadgets. Uh, You you just can't believe uh, the stuff that goes on. I have a friend who works for WMBI Moody Bible Institute in uh, Chicago, and every year he has me come on at the Christian Booksellers and give the, the bottom ten which is the worst and most blasphemous things on the floor. And I remember some years ago it was Testa Mints. And they come in two flavors. Old Testa Mints and new Testa Mints. Well now, that doesn't even bother anybody. There is Powerade for a Holy Spirit workout. Um, I'm trying to think of some... Actually, last year it wasn't quite as bad. The worst of all was 
the year that there was a guy, you know how you blow up the balloons and make those chihuahuas and the dachshunds and things like that? This guy blew up a balloon Jesus hanging on a balloon cross. Yeah. That's typical, by the way, of what goes on at this place. Now I'm in a tight spot because I can't remember why I told you that story. Mike Horton. Thank you. See, I'm not responsible if I can't remember. Well, he was on the floor of CBA. And by the way, this is why you need to be very careful why you buy your Christian, where you buy your Christian books. Because these are the people who decide what they're going to sell that you should buy. So Mike had a tape recorder, or a friend of his had a tape recorder, went around. He couldn't find five people on the floor who could tell him how a man was made right with God. But 76% of them believed that God helps them who help themselves was a Bible verse. See, that's what we're dealing with out there. People say, why do you go to a thing like that? And there's Roman Catholic people over here selling their books, and there's, you know, God's diet over here, and things like that, and... um, I remember the one year, God always has a sense of humor. He puts us across from the most bizarre booths. And over here, there was a little thing you hang in your window. God danced the day you were born. You know. It's nonsense. People are off theological. Why do you go? Well, we go to be the alternative. And I always feel like I need a shower afterwards. You know. <laughs> And that's the way we feel. But if we don't go, then we're capitulating. But that's the kind of mindset people have. God helps those who help themselves. What's the truth? God helps those who can't help themselves. That's again why we sang the Augustus Top Lady song. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The issue is not how good you and I have been. The issue is always how good Christ has been on my behalf. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and what? Righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And how interesting. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. It's not the righteousness of Christ added to my faith that saves me. It's Christ who saves me and I put my trust in Him and what He has done and that is saving faith. That is all my salvation. If any part of this depended on me, I'm lost. Years and years ago when I was still a college student at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, I think Ogilvy was the pastor then, there was a youth pastor named Jack Lou. And I don't know whatever happened to Jack. Uh, he was on the staff at Azusa Pacific uh, for a while when I was there. But I remember Jack gave this thing, and I have used it for the last 30 years. And I still think it's so good. 
about these three men who die and they appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And Christ says to the first one, Why should I let you into my heaven? And the man says, Because I believe in you. And Jesus says, So you want into my heaven based on what you have done. Well, yes. No one gets into heaven because of what they have done, and they send him away. Well, the second man had learned that lesson. And why should I let you into my heaven? <laughs> because I not only believed in you, but I obeyed in you. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. <laughs> Alan Jack Lou said that. I didn't. So you want into my heaven based on what you have done. Well, but yeah, that, that's the way it works. No, nobody gets into heaven based on what they have done. They send him away. Can you imagine being the third man if you're a mainline evangelical at this point? Okay, faith wasn't enough. Faith and obedience wasn't enough. So God says to him, why should I let you into my heaven? And the man says, I can't think of a single reason except that you promised that if I would put my faith in you, that you would save me. Jesus said, so you want into heaven based on what I have done? And the man says, that's all I've got. And Jesus said, that's all you need. Come in. See, if you ask somebody, what makes you think you're a Christian? And they say, because I believe in Jesus. Faith is not a Protestant work that's better than all the Roman Catholic works combined, you know. Faith is just a rational act. It's the most sensical thing in the world to trust a perfect Savior who gives you what you need and then rewards you for having it. And so you say, I put my faith in Him. And God accounts that for righteousness. Not only was all that David's salvation, it was all his desire. Boy, I wish I could say that. As many times as I've read it, I don't think I'll ever come close to understanding Asaph's words in Psalm 73:25. Whom have I in heaven besides thee? And on earth I desire nothing else. I wish I had a heart like that. I mean, I have things that I want. I want my car to start. I want to see my feet again before I die. <laughs> I have all kinds of things I want. And here's a man with a heart that says, the only thing that makes heaven to be heaven for me is Christ. That, that's all I want on earth too. How can you ever be discontent when that's all you want? God was all David wanted. The covenant was all David needed. And in Psalm 23, since God was David's shepherd, David affirmed that he lacked nothing. And the reason he lacked nothing, the reason he desired nothing else, was because he saw God as we don't, as being all that our hearts could ever need and all that we could ever want. Our hope is in God, friends, in his blood, in his righteousness, in his covenant, in his promise, in his faithfulness, in his character, in his unchangeableness, in his never-ending love, in his sure mercies, and the eternal covenant He's made with us through Christ. Yeah. 
My home is not all that it should be before God. Yet, He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, and this is all my salvation. 